Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, guys. Oliver here. Just me this week. I have a very fun interview with Dmitry Shevelenko, who's the CEO of Tortoise, an autonomous micromobility company based in the Bay Area. This week, we're talking about the benefits and challenges of self-driving scooters. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you know that I'm pretty bullish on this space. I think we'll see scooters before we see cars on the road. And this was a great conversation with Dimitri as we unpacked what the implications of that might be. But before that, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Particle. As we're about to talk about, all these shared scooters, bikes, and other coming micromobility devices are connected to the internet. When that isn't configured correctly and operators lose contact with their fleet, it can get expensive very quickly. If you don't know where your $700 scooter is, you're in a deep doo-doo. And as I've learned more, I've really come to appreciate just how complex it is trying to make that work well. That's where Particle comes in. They provide an end-to-end IoT platform from device management and connectivity to hardware to connect all of those bikes and scooters up to make them actually work. For operators, whether it's tracking your fleet or addressing on-demand regulations in every city, it can get pretty complicated. And then when you have to do that at scale and you're adding new geographies and new countries, it can get very, very complex. Their IoT platform enables customization, fleet management tools, and reliable connectivity to support your growth and differentiation in the market. From the operators that I've talked to, Particle has been a godsend in helping streamline the hard bits of operating their businesses and allow them to actually focus just on the day-to-day ops. Visit particle.io micromobility to learn more and request a free IoT development kit. All podcast listeners will also receive a free consultation. So visit particle.io forward slash micromobility today. And thanks to Particle for being sponsors and allowing us to continue to make these excellent episodes. And now over to Dimitri. And welcome back to Micromobility. Today we have with us Dmitry Shevelenko. How are you doing today, Dmitry? Fantastic. I've been excited to speak with you on this podcast for a while now. Oh, dude. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we, we connected, what, probably nine nine months ago, I think? Uh, yeah. And I've been, ex- I've been following you guys for, for a while. I mean, really, really exciting to see. And it was obviously wonderful to have you on stage with us in Berlin to talk about robotics and micromobility. But I thought maybe what we could do is actually start right back in, in the beginning. Talk us through. I mean, you, you came to being and, and working on Tortoise, but not it's kind of an interesting and circuitous route. Uh, you were at Uber. Is that correct? Yeah, so, so I spent four awesome years at Uber on the BD side and led the, the company's partnership and acquisition with Jump. So got into micromobility through that. It was actually somewhat of a circuitous process. We were doing driver hourly rentals with, with GetAround and we realized if we're renting cars by the hour to drivers, we should probably do that to riders as well if the goal of Uber is to make private car ownership irrelevant. And if Uber is all of a sudden renting things to riders, why are we only renting cars when we can be renting e-bikes and scooters, uh, which didn't exist at the time uh, as, as a form factor yet? We realized there, there's a much broader ecosystem of mobility options. And to get people off of private car ownership, it wasn't just going to be rideshare. 
it was going to be what, what I called the four legs of the stool. It was going to be ride share, public transit, shared micromobility, and short-term car rentals. And if you combine those, bundle them, making them convenient and accessible, that becomes a real alternative to, to anything you may need a car for. Uh, and so we started with, with hourly rentals of cars, and then I was fortunate to try the jump bike when it first came out and, and had that superhuman-like experience where as you give power <laughs> to the vehicle, it, it gives the perfect amount of power back. And I wasn't, you know, I'm not a cyclist. I'm not, I'm not somebody that is necessarily uh, a bike person, but that, that was the magical moment that it didn't feel like you had to be a bike person to enjoy and use this form of transportation that is a lot faster way to get from A to B if you're going two to four miles and a lot more fun. If I remember correctly, you also helped do the Masabi deal as well, right? And, uh, while yeah. You yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like I said, public transit is definitely one of those four legs of the stool. And so we need to bring that into Uber to, to make it the one-stop shop for transportation. And you can't do that without integrated public transit ticketing. Uh, and Masabi is definitely the uh, the leader in that space, uh, working with the, the the largest number of, of big cities and transit systems. And so, uh, so yeah, it was exciting to, to, to help usher in that experience as well into Uber. Google Maps, in many ways, was the first to pioneer this in terms of trying to combine a lot of modes into one app, but they never took it to the transactions level. So they just give you yeah. times and availability. And to me, the holy grail was you, you have to get to that transactions level and the ability to control payments to eventually get to bundling, right? And I think you know the the north star for all of this is is when does this just become one subscription bundle that combines everything? And so you you know, you know I think for for Uber the big opportunity is still to to be this Amazon Prime of transportation and to leverage the the footprint they already have in rideshare to to aggregate and combine modes. Obviously, you know my background's at Uber as well different different part of the the org but it's, it's just when i look at this space I, i'm i came out of out of that out of my time at uber and was like micro mobility but i've also come to it from the perspective of like the platform matters right we can get into this later but i'm really curious about who are the players really when you think about those other platforms that are going to emerge because i think that that's very relevant for you guys when you think about autonomous and autonomous micro mobility but when you left who, what did you end up doing like what was the pathway from you getting from there to being ceo of tortoise yeah, so so was uh, after four years at Uber, I didn't see one company that was going to be the next big thing, but I saw a lot of promising companies in the mobility and future of workspace that all could have benefited from from my help, and so I became an advisor to eight different companies, startups. So so ranging from Skip Scooters, one of the operators headquartered in San Francisco, to Super Pedestrian, which is now one of the leading scooter hardware OEMs to Remix, which is leading SaaS solution for, for cities and transit agencies doing new mobility planning, was working with, with Cargo, which is a vending machine that goes in the back of Ubers, was working with Spot Hero, the number one mobile parking aggregator. I think actually parking is, is one of those modes that companies in mobility don't think enough about because the reality is we, we still have cars and making parking more seamless is, is a really big opportunity. Was working with Skyrise, which is building autonomous helicopters. So I describe myself as, as a congressman turned lobbyist in the uh, in the broader mobility ecosystem. And 
you know, benefited from, from seeing a lot of exceptional entrepreneurs run their businesses and, and helping them think through strategic partnerships, fundraising, and, and strategic initiatives. And got, you know, through, through that experience, seeing micromobility from three different lenses, saw, you know, the incredible promise, which I saw at Uber, which is something you guys talk a lot about, that the 60% of private car trips that are under two miles, the, the 50% of Uber and Lyft trips that are under two miles, and why are we using a two-ton vehicle to go less than two miles? That, to me, is, is a, at the most macro level, you know, the, the problem we're all trying to solve, but saw three, three things that were really inhibiting micromobility from realizing its, its full potential. First is, in, in the dockless world, you have negative externalities of sidewalk clutter and obstruction. And so that, you know, to, to have that super fast door-to-door travel time, but not have the people who aren't on the scooter be upset, uh, how do you solve that problem? Despite riders loving scooters, they couldn't rely on them. And so you, you still, in most markets, only are getting four or five rentals a day per scooter, even in pretty dense areas. And then sustainability. There still isn't an operator today that's profitable. And for, for micromobility to be putting on conferences 10 years from now, we need to get all the operators profitable. And so Tortoise kind of came together out of seeing, seeing micromobility through all those lenses and, and seeing that the technology was available today to, with one intervention, address those three core challenges. I hear you on all of those, the sidewalk clutter, the vehicles and actually being able to, I mean, your point around there only being four to five rides a day in the density and the reliability aspect, can that just be solved through just getting more scooters out on the streets? I mean, is that a, is that a regulatory solve? Because a lot of that, a lot of well, that. But if you do that, being, yeah, but, but like if you do that, then you make the clutter and obstruction and cities frustration with, with scooters being in all the wrong places, it gets worse, right? So the way I, I describe shared scooters today is imagine a taxi service where your driver could only wait at the location of their last drop-off for their next pickup. And so the, the idea that these vehicles are only being utilized 20% of the hours in which they're available, that's a massive opportunity and it's a problem. So I think, yeah, you, you could solve it in dense cities, but, but in a suburb, you're just never going to have a viable shared micromobility ecosystem if you leave a scooter outside your house, the likelihood it's going to be useful to somebody else but you is just very small. And so I think you know the, the current model works in, in dense environments without automated repositioning, but but the second you, you start moving out of those hyper dense areas, I certainly didn't see didn't see the path ahead for for the operators. No, I totally hear you. So talk me through how did you come to be doing tortoise. Yeah, so my, my co-founder, David Graham, who's the, uh, the technical genius behind Tortoise, he, he had his own independent engineering consulting firm, and they were hired by a manufacturer of riding lawnmowers, so the type of lawnmowers you use for large suburban grass lawns, and they were going from internal combustion to electric battery, and they wanted to see how much more in component costs would it be to also support autonomy, basically have a Roomba for these really large lawns. And so you can yeah. sit back, drink beer, watch your lawn mill itself. And David <laughs> and his team looked into it and uh, came to a somewhat shocking conclusion. And because of the smartphone piece dividend, so because the cameras and components inside our, our smartphones have all gotten 10 times more powerful while getting 10 times cheaper over the last five years or so, you could, with less than $100, 
as long as you're going at a max speed of five miles per hour and don't have a rider on the vehicle, support automated repositioning of a lawnmower. And so David thought this was pretty profound, but didn't want to spend the rest of his life in the lawnmower industry. But one of his other consulting clients was, was Lyft. So he was generally familiar with how much money they were burning every day per scooter just for repositioning the scooters to get recharged every night. So upwards of $10 a day per scooter. And so he started talking to the different operators, thinking they would would hire his consultancy to build this for them in-house. At the time I was at Skip and and we looked at it and quickly realized that expecting an operator to build this in-house is kind of like expecting Avis to build the first self-driving car. It's not, not their core competency. But through this process, me and David uh, realized we, we had a really complementary skill set uh, and had a much bigger shared vision, which was it's not just scooters and e-bikes that, that benefit from automated repositioning. Eventually, delivery robots, security robots, cleaning robots, in a world where you can build $500 light electric vehicles and with $100 in extra sensors, have them move around a city with no human labor in the loop, what you're really unlocking is, is the ability to move physical packets across a city with no marginal cost. And what we saw with the internet is when you reduce that, that transfer cost of digital information to a marginal cost, the rate of transfer increases exponentially. And so I think the same thing is possible for the world of physical packets. We're starting with scooters and e-bikes where there's this trifecta of, of value that's being created all at once where you increase utilization, you cut costs, and you create a public policy benefit. But kind of the, the galaxy brain vision, as I like to call it, is we right now live in an ownership society. We use the things that we own, not necessarily because those are the things we want to be using at any given point in time, but it's just way too expensive and inconvenient to constantly be going and renting things as we want them. But if things just came to you at no marginal cost and you could wear clothes that you wanted every morning, you could use the things inside your house that you wanted, not the things that you just happen to own, we increase the utilization of all physical assets that are being created. And that's my general MO. I want to increase, you know, if we're building something, something's getting created in the world, it should be utilized. And the clothes in our closets, the, the cars that sit empty 95% of the hours in a week, the scooters that sit empty 80% of the hours in a week, to me, that's, that's the problem that we want to solve is move things around so they can be maximally utilized. And we now have the technological possibility and the price point is right to, to be able to do this at massive scale. Well, you're definitely preaching to the choir. I mean, like I, I remember when Horace talked about in, in an earlier episode around this idea of an intelligence power and network framework for thinking about micromobility. And one of the things that we talked about is this idea of having intelligence in the vehicle be infused. And to the point that, you know, like you could have a scooter that would drive itself to you and you go like, wow, the reason this is so interesting is because as you mentioned, the marginal cost is incredibly low per kilometer because you're moving a very, very small vehicle. It doesn't operate with humans. So the safety aspect is very, is very clear. And then it's, and it's highly functional. Like it ends up turning up and then people can hop on and then it relocates itself around a city and, and you can really reduce the need for the number of vehicles that you've got on the streets. 
I'm really curious, what's the angle that you're coming into this with it? You mentioned asking operators to do this is like, you know, asking Avis to build the first self-driving car. Makes a lot of sense to me. What's the approach that Tortoise has taken in terms of developing your tech? And then how you, you know, who are your customers and how do you think about that? Yeah, so so we are an ecosystem company. So we're, we're dependent on scooter manufacturers and e-bike manufacturers to integrate our reference design into their vehicles. And then when operators purchase those vehicles, they, we charge them a either monthly subscription fee or a per mile repositioning fee for actually using our technology. And, and our core technology stack is the routing to get from A to B, the most efficient path that triggers the least amount of teleoperator intervention, the autonomy software to handle the easy parts of the trip at that max five mile per hour speed. So you have an empty sidewalk in front of you. You don't necessarily need a remote teleoperator to handle that. But the second the autonomy software identifies something that it doesn't can't proceed or it's a, a sensitive situation like a road crossing, a pedestrian in front of you, a dog in front of you, the vehicle will stop itself. And then we have our network of, of trained and certified teleoperators that are able to see out of the camera on the front of the vehicle and, and take control and keep it going on its route. And then the autonomy software can take over again when it's an easy part of the trip. And so it's constantly switching back and forth. And then because we are accountable for all of the technology that's powering the repositioning, we also take out insurance and liability for the vehicle when it's being repositioned. So we're the single throat to choke for regulators and cities, ensuring that this is safe and that there's accountability, again, when the vehicles are in motion. And so we've talked about this before, what we're not doing is we're not trying to be a full stack company. We think there's, you know, there's over 100 shared micromobility operators in the world. We think it's a fragmented ecosystem. And even if we were wildly successful as an individual operator, the size of prize is actually not as compelling as, as being a B2B provider that, that's powering this technology for, for all operators. And we're not a hardware company. We think there's dozens of, of scooter and e-bike manufacturers that are all aggressively competing against each other, and they need to be world-class at hardware, and we're going to be world-class at software and services. And so you know, the, the way we talk about ourselves is we're the Android for light electric vehicles powering repositioning of them. And so we, we want to work with every OEM and make it easy for them to have scooters and, and e-bikes that operators want to buy because ultimately operators want to be profitable and automated repositioning unlocks profitability for any operator. Yeah, so talk me through that part. Based on the calculations that you've done, what would be the operational efficiencies that you can unlock with adding autonomy to a scooter? As you, you guys have been talking about this MIT study that came out that, that showed what's possible when, when scooters are, are repositioning in real time throughout the day. But going back to the analogy we were using before, imagine that that taxi service that the driver can only wait at the location of their last drop-off for their next pickup. Imagine if the next day a different operator, taxi operator, lets the drivers roam around and find their next demand. Better yet, imagine a Uber or Lyft-like ecosystem around shared micromobility where you can just press a button and, and the scooter comes to you. And, and so you know, the, the, the basic math of it is we think that with automated repositioning, you can at least double the rentals per day per scooter. So go from four to eight because you're repositioning to where there's demand in real time. 
And then the single biggest daily operating costs, the, the repositioning for recharging, we think we can drive a 10x cost reduction on that. So go from $10 a day to a dollar a day to make that happen. And then the other really exciting part of this is expanding the, the total addressable market for shared micromobility. Uh, so right now, like we discussed, it, it's really focused on urban areas, dense cities, but there's tens of thousands of suburbs that also need better transportation options. And so we want shared micromobility to be relevant there as well. So it's, it's about, you know, with one intervention, you're, you're doubling your revenue per day per scooter, you're driving a 10x reduction in your single biggest daily operating costs, and, and you now have the ability to service a lot more markets. I don't have anything that I disagree with in there other than it just kind of seems a little bit preposterous that we're going to have these things zooming around on the sidewalk or on the road. And I am kind of curious, I'm about as bullish in this space as anybody, and yet even I still struggle to see cities going, yeah, yeah, we're happy with these to be deployed. What's the conversations been like? Have you done any testing? Do we know what that starts to look like when you start seeing scooters drive themselves around? Because I can see that there's just a heap of problems that come up. And how are you thinking through those? Yeah, so, so I think the thing that gives us confidence there is we've now had sidewalk delivery robots like Starship and KiwiBot operate in over something like 100 different markets with pretty strong public reception and, and engagement and regulators seeing this as a, as a way to reduce congestion because you don't have delivery vehicles uh, doing the, the same, you know, p- people doing food delivery in cars. So I think that's validated that low-speed automation is not something that, that people are going to be terrified of. But, but the fundamental bet of Tortoise is low-speed automation happens before high-speed automation. And so I, I think, to me, it's a lot more preposterous to think that self-driving cars are coming in 2021 or, or whenever the new date is than to believe that we're, we're first going to start with low-speed scooters and e-bikes and, and delivery robots. And ultimately, the, the cities that we're engaged with, they see us as a safety solution for sidewalk clutter and obstruction. So Peachtree Corners, Georgia, the suburb of Atlanta, we're going to do our first U.S. deployment. They're 20 minutes away from Atlanta, and they're terrified of Atlanta sidewalks. And so they're only allowing shared micromobility if there's automated repositioning to ensure that right after a rider's trip is complete, a scooter is reparked in a city-designated parking location. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're not trying to first focus on the most dense areas where you have very crowded sidewalks and you will see kind of, you know, you'll have the most complicated uh, interactions. But the concern around clutter and obstruction is very real. It's what's holding a lot of cities back from shared micromobility. And they see our technology as a solution to mitigate that. And ultimately, when you're going five miles per hour, that's the pace of a pedestrian walking, even a bit slower. The safety factors here are, are fundamentally different than with self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, frankly, areas that have received billions of dollars in, in funding and investment on the hope that they're just around the corner, they seem much farther away. Yeah, I am really curious about that because the cynical take on this would be that this is just going to be as bad as cars. There'll be billions poured into the space and, and we won't have anything to show for it in five years, as we have seen with the autonomy in cars. Why don't you think this? Why is this different? Is it the low speed and it's easier to deploy? Yeah, because we've had this technology inside our homes for over a decade now. It's called the Roomba. You have so many fewer variables. There's just fundamentally different technological risks like... Even the most sophisticated self-driving car can't do 
a unprotected left turn. Whereas when you have riders in a car, it can't stop frequently to, to fall back to teleoperations. For our first pilots, they're actually going to be 100% teleoperated, which helps cities get a lot more comfortable with the technology. And then over time, we, we layer in autonomy again for, for the, the very easy parts of the trip where there's just absolutely nothing in front of you. But yeah, to me, the fundamental differences are the speed, the ease of switching between teleoperation control and autonomous control, um, and that you're solving a real problem. I think to me, the real existential worry about self-driving cars is who benefits on day one? Do you actually have access to transportation that you don't have today? You have rideshare in every major market, every suburb in the world. And so the experience of pressing a button and having a, a vehicle come to you, if it's a car, that exists. Maybe it'll get 20% cheaper, 30% cheaper, but certainly not in the early days of self-driving cars when we're talking about million-dollar vehicles. Whereas with, with scooters and e-bikes, today you have to go on a wild goose chase in most markets to find a scooter. So there's an immediate rider benefit on day one. There's an immediate public policy benefit in that you're ensuring scooters aren't where they shouldn't be. They're not cluttering the sidewalk. And there's an immediate business model benefit for, for operators who, who are able to increase revenue and reduce their biggest operating costs and, and keep going because now investors believe that, that there's true profitability as possible. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on all of that. Talk me through, you mentioned that it was like $100 of bill of materials to make these things. Because if you look at autonomous cars, you're talking about, you know, it's like a 70 or 80 or $100,000 car to make, to make the whole tech stack work for something, some level of autonomy. For something that may, hasn't yet on sale, by the way, I should point out as well, when we're doing this interview, there isn't really like a full self-driving car available today. What, for you guys, what's the tech stack that it takes to take a scooter from being what it is at the moment, you know, just like this two-wheeled battery powered device to being something that can have that level of capability to be able to do low speed autonomy? Yeah, so so there's three components to, to the additional hardware. The first is the brain. So that's two cameras and the same radar chip that's now in every car when you back up and it starts beep, beep, beeping that you're about to hit something. So basically sonar just to identify the proximity of, of an object near you. And the cameras cost $15 and $20 each. Like I said, that, that chip costs $2, the Infineon chip. And then a $30 MediaTek processor that's in most low-end Android smartphones. You add, so that's the brain, to the base of the steering column, you add a commodity motor that lets you turn left and right remotely, either or autonomously. And then if it's a two-wheel scooter, you add a robotic actuator with training wheels on it. So think of a kid's bike cross with airplane landing wheels. So when it's in rider mode, the two training wheels are up. When they're, it's in an autonomy teleops mode, the training wheels are down, and it basically replaces the, the kickstand. For three-wheel scooters, you don't even need that. So yeah, it's, it's a fairly simple set of additions and altogether less than $100. And like I said at the outset, what we're really benefiting from is this massive wave of price competition and component commoditization in, in the smartphone supply chain. And we're taking those same components, those cameras that have gone 10 times more powerful and putting them on the front handlebar of a scooter or e-bike. So you've got all those things and then the, you just run that off a cellular connection? Yeah, so we take advantage of the existing, so, so the, the constraint on the markets we can operate in is there needs to be reliable 4G connectivity. And one of the things we do before deployment is we pre-map all of the, the routes we would, we would go on to ensure that there's 
minimum 4G connectivity on them. And if there are dead zones, we just route around those. But yeah, we, we take advantage of the existing accelerometer, GPS, and data card on the scooters. I've been having this conversation with some of the um, the Lime guys because I obviously uh, I'm bullish on autonomy. And their thing to me is like, this all sounds really wonderful, but man, there's going to be a giant impact on battery life because it's just like we already we already struggle with battery life, having to run all these things extra, anything extra on the vehicle, obviously, like there's a real drain on it and it stops us from getting money, right? Because our, our revenue on the is actually derived from the distances that we we're able to have the vehicle go. So by the time you actually get to something that's like in production, what do you expect the impact on battery life to be like? The most important consideration there is most battery consumption today is moving the weight of the rider. It's our 150 pounds or so. That's the heavy lifting that the battery is doing. When the scooter is just moving itself, that's a much lighter load on, on the battery. And so what, what we're seeing is to do eight autonomous trips a day at 30 minutes each, that takes up less than 10% of a daily charge. Now, a, a large part of this is we're very efficient in terms of the, the processing we're doing. So we're, we're only taking the bare minimum we need from the camera feed and processing that. And we're doing a lot of cropping and compressing. That's definitely a, a key engineering consideration for us. But part of what we also enable is, and, and this I think will, will be a reality, is if you're getting more rentals per day per scooter, you are going to use up more battery life. But with today's operational limitations, you can only do one recharge per day and it's at night. Whereas with automated repositioning and swappable batteries, the second the battery is, you know, say under 15%, you just drive it to a swapping location, get swapped and goes back out and gets more rentals per day. Whereas if you can only do one fleet retrieval per, per day and you're doing it nighttime, if, if you're in San Francisco and you had somebody take a scooter up a really steep hill and by 11 a.m. it's depleted its battery, you're just having that scooter sit empty and not generate revenue all day long. Whereas with automated repositioning, it could drive itself to, to get swapped or recharged and go back out on the street and, and keep generating more revenue. So I think even if we were consuming more battery charge to, to do automated repositioning, we also enable recharging throughout the day as opposed to, again, this just once a day nighttime recharging which is when you're doing fleet vans and juicer pickups, that's how you're restricted from an operational point of view to only do it once a day. Yep, I hear you on that. When you're thinking about this bit for being automated repositioning, I am curious, do you think, at least in the places that you want to roll this out, that you're going to end up with dedicated infrastructure for this? Or where do you see this existing? Like on the sidewalk, in the bike lanes, on the road, when it's moving itself around? So we work really closely with, with the cities where we deploy and we empower them to draw the map. And so I, I think depending on the market and, and the, the city preference, you know, our, our technology works on road shoulder, bike lane, sidewalk. If you have an eight foot sidewalk like you do in Peachtree Corners, that's perfectly good place to do automated repositioning. If you have a very big road shoulder, that can be just as good as well. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution, and I think it's about creating that map in partnership with the city and making them feel comfortable with the routing that you're going to use. As long as you have flexible technology, you should be able to, to find a solution for pretty much any market. And a, a large part of the routing is also going around the areas where you're going to have a lot of pedestrians. So the more pedestrians there are on a sidewalk, the slower you're going to go 
which increases the, the cost of the repositioning because that's more teleoperator time, that's more data costs. So there's a natural alignment of incentives to find the route goes through the least amount of people and goes through the least amount of, of sensitive parts of the road. And so that's how we're approaching it. We're, we're very cognizant of not having to require any additional infrastructure in any market we deploy in. And I think we'll be able to piggyback off of this larger set of investments that cities are making in building more and better sidewalks and building bike lanes. And that's where, you know, the, the more of that type of, of surface that exists that's not built for cars, that, that's more surface area for us. I noticed that with your strategy, at least the, the prototype videos that we've seen, and you can see, uh, I'll link to them in the in the show notes, but folks can see the demo prototype that you showed in Berlin. You've gone with two-wheeled scooters with trainer wheels, at least for these prototypes. And I'm kind of curious, Segway obviously has come with the T60, and I'm, I'm keen to talk to you about that as well in, in a second. But you have gone with that design choice of the two-wheeled scooter at the moment with the training wheels. Why did you choose that over a three-wheeled? And where do you see this going? Like, where do you where do you see this getting to when you actually get into a, a kind of production scooter? So, yeah, so we, we currently have four different OEM partners that we're working with. One of them, Yumi, is actually building a three-wheel scooter that, that's going to be Tortoise compatible for automated repositioning. The choice of the two-wheel Xiaomi for our demo units is just because a lot of the firmware for the Xiaomi was available on the internet. And so in terms of a vehicle that you could easily retrofit and have access to the IoT and, and the, the motor controls, that was the easiest choice. And we also wanted to prove to OEMs that you didn't have to wait until three-wheelers become a thing to start deploying this technology, that if you want to keep the two-wheel form factor, the robotic training wheels empower that. But our core technology stack is, is not the hardware. Like we provide that for free to the OEMs. We give that reference. We want as many OEMs, including Ninebot, to build vehicles that, that are capable of automated repositioning. And then we focus on the software and services, including the teleoperations and the insurance. So we're not tied to any form factor, but we thought it was important to show the world that you don't need to wait for three-wheel scooters to become a thing. But yeah, one of our other OEM partners is a three-wheel e-bike VMO that is enclosed. So we're, we're certainly not limiting ourselves to the two-wheel form factor. Uh, I hear you on that. Um, and speaking of the T60, who do you consider to be your competitors in this space? Yeah, so I would love to have Ninebot be a partner because I think they're an exceptional hardware company, but they don't have a lot of experience with software, with services, with teleoperations, with getting cities comfortable with, with the insurance and liability implications. And so, like I said, we, we want to work with all OEMs. As, as I describe ourselves, we're the Android for, for light electric vehicles. And so if Ninebot does decide to go full stack, then I see them as the iOS but I don't see any other OEMs going down that path, at least not, not anytime soon. And if we come up with a good solution for OEMs, they, they don't need to invest in developing that software competency from scratch, uh, which and is really hard to about do. OEM, you're talking about OEM in the scooter space, not cars, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's just funny because oftentimes we'll talk about OEMs and it's and it's really talking about car manufacturers. But I guess we're now we're now at the point where the scooter industry has got its light OEM. electric vehicle OEMs. Yeah, yeah, that, totally. That's the yeah. So I would say what's kind of rare is this horizontal play that we're doing, trying to power all OEMs and not compete with operators. Currently, we don't have any competition that in in that space. 
you know, I'd say the closest thing we have to a horizontal competitor is Phantom Auto, which is doing teleoperations for delivery robots, but they're not doing routing, they're not doing their own autonomy software, so they, you know, they just are powering the teleoperations. And they first started doing teleoperations for cars, which is a very different for self-driving cars and, you know, because that industry has frozen in terms of actual deployments, they had to pivot. So they're now doing it for delivery robots. Obviously, there's in the micro-autonomy space, you're familiar with Wheel Autonomy in, in Seattle that's building a full-stack e-bike that repositions itself. And their plan, I believe, is to launch their own consumer-facing service. And we wish them well, and we want other players to, to help push on the regulatory front. But we think it's incredibly hard to be world-class at, at hardware, software, and consumer-facing operations. There's only been one company in all history that's pulled it off, Apple. Yeah. I like the wheel guys and I want them to be the next Apple, but that's a really hard thing to make possible. There's Scoot B in Singapore and Malaysia. They're also going full stack. But in terms of the horizontal space, we anticipate that all of these self-driving car companies that are going to hit fundraising pressures are, are going to pivot to a market where the, the technology is more immediately deployable. And so I, I think we will have competition. I think... People are waking up to what's possible here, certainly after our big press push this week. I'm sure a lot of other smart people are realizing what we saw. And we think there's definitely, I believe, a first mover multi-operator advantage. We anticipate that there'll there'll be other great teams that, that see what we see. The bottleneck is finding cities that are willing to give us that that written permission to deploy and so we're not we're not competing against anybody we're we're trying to move as fast as possible to bring this technology to to suburban communities the other group that I'd also be thinking about from your guys' perspective would be delivery robots. So like this, the KiwiBot guys or Starship saying, hey, we've got a lot of the stuff of like, how do you go and operate on sidewalks? And we've got these cities mapped and we know how they work and we've got the tally ops and we know what the tech stack looks like and all that sort of stuff and saying, you know, it's not that much of a leap from that to being able to integrate it into a scooter. And that would be the other place. That- I, I think it's fair and definitely respect their ability to enter the market. I, I think because food delivery on the consumer side was not as fragmented as micromobility, all those companies for their go-to-market, they actually had to get their own restaurants on board. They have to get their own consumers to install their app uh, and they have to figure out all this technology. And so once you're going full stack in the food space and you've invested so much in, and again, having to onboard the restaurants, get people to install your mobile app, it becomes harder to then become a horizontal player as opposed to if our vision and and mission from day one has been empowering scooter operators and e-bike operators to to get to to profitability and to make their service safer and more sustainable. And so I think startups win or die based off of focus and and speed of decision-making. And I think our pure focus on serving the scooter operators and making them wildly successful and only then expanding into other verticals is going to give us an advantage there. But yeah, it's true that the the routing and teleoperations can be repurposed. And I think if you look at the hardware components we're using in our reference design, they're very similar to, to the sensors that are on those delivery robots at low speeds as well. Yeah. When you're seeing your system working, 
what are the KPIs that you are considering and like thinking are really important? The one thing that I'm just thinking about here is people already kick the scooters over if they're sitting there. And then you've got a scooter that's sort of lying on the ground and going like, you have to go and pick it up. What are the things that you consider the kind of key KPIs for you being able to like run a successful service for the, for folks? So the, the most important one is, is trip completion rate, which I think captures some of the, the concern you reflected there. So when, you know, an operator, all they tell us is vehicle ID and the GPS coordinates of where they want it repositioned. And are we doing that at least, you know, 98% of the time successfully without requiring any field intervention? So I think the we get the vandalism question a lot. I think part of today's vandalism is, is people think of these scooters as pretty dumb. But once they realize there's cameras on them, not that we're sharing that, we don't even record and save the, the camera feed, we just use it in real time. But I think the cost of committing that vandalism in, in people's heads changes when, when there's some deterrent factor of, of thinking you might get caught. And I think based off of what we've seen with delivery robots, for every person that knocks one over, you have two people that actually help a delivery robot keep going on its path. I'm optimistic based off what we've seen in that space that that isn't going to be our largest problem. But besides trip completion rate, which is are we fulfilling our, our core purpose, the other KPIs are are we increasing rentals per day per scooter as a pure A-B test if you have scooters that are being repositioned in real time throughout the day. And then in the same market, you, you have scooters that are static. Are we you know, at least doubling the, the rentals per day for, for the dynamic fleet? Are we driving at least that two to three X cost reduction in the nightly cost of, of recharging? And I think the most important constituency in the early days is, is cities, right? Are the regulators happy? Do they feel that they're getting less complaints about clutter and obstruction? And we want to make sure that cities feel like we're delivering on that public policy benefit. I think one of the other ways in which cities are very excited about our technology is without automated repositioning, all the scooters tend to converge in the most dense part of any given area, which tends to be the area that already has the most transportation options. And so the ability to service communities and areas that don't have other transportation options and to drive scooters back to those areas after somebody takes a trip. You know, cities are very excited about using Tortoise to enforce equitable access policy objectives. And so we want to be a partner to them in making that easy. Nice. And, and in terms of the go-to-market strategy, so you've got, as you mentioned, your trial in Atlanta. Who is that going to be with and how does that, is that with the operator itself directly? Have you got, what's the hardware going to be like? Talk me through the next one year, two years, three years, four years, like at what sort of stage do we start seeing widespread self-driving scooters in your optimal world? Yeah, so we always deploy with an operator partner. So we're never, we never operate ourselves, right? We're never going to compete with operators. We're not yet announcing which operator we're working with in Peachtree Corners, but it's, it's a world-class operator. We also have pilots that are going to happen in Europe before end of the year as well in, in at least two to three different markets. And so I, I think by, by end of Q1 next year, you're going to see at least 50 to 100 scooters in five different markets with automated repositioning. These are all structured as, as six-month initial pilots that if they're successful, they, they just keep going. But like I said, cities see this as a solution to clutter and obstruction. And so once it's kind of validated at that scale of, of 50 to 100 vehicles, 
There's no reason that the entire fleets can't be powered with automated repositioning. I'm sure there's new issues we'll, we'll uncover in, in terms of concerns that happen when, when we're operating at that scale. But I consider that a first-class problem that we want to get to as soon as possible. The double-edged sword is, as we all know, the current lifetime of, of most scooters is a few months. So the rate at which fleets are getting refreshed is very fast. And so it's not like we have to wait a year or two years for, for operators to deploy a new type of vehicle model that is uh, capable of automated repositioning. Some of the OEM partners we announced this week, Gimme, Acton, they're going to start manufacturing tortoise-compatible scooters that, that are ready for sale as early as Q1. So the bottleneck for us is, is not going to be the vehicles. It's going to be the cities where they can be deployed. And so we need to make our first five pilot markets very successful. And from there, the sky's the limit. Talk me through your funding. When did you close your last funding round and how much was it for? I've already uh, already promised that as an exclusive to some business publications. We're not ready to discuss the details at this time, but uh, we, we have a host of both institutional inv- investors and some of the top executives in the mobility space that, that are angels, part of Tortoise. We, we started fundraising in July. One thing I like to say is there's the, the pre-T60 and post-T60 era of Tortoise. And so right. once Ninebot helped validate that, that this is a real thing, the investor receptiveness has gotten to be fundamentally different. But yeah, we're, I think we'll, we'll definitely be announcing funding news before end of the year. But uh, I, I unfortunately can't disclose that today. I am really curious. I mean, for the investors that are looking at you, how are they thinking about the bet? Because the, the one thing that we have that I've seen, at least in the micromobility sort of capital world, has been that there was an initial kind of the Gartner hype cycle was holy crap. Oh, my God, look at the unit economics of these things. You know, peak hype, especially kind of last summer. And then in, we kind of went into the doldrums in the early part of 2019. And now we're kind of at this point where like, OK, we think we can make the traditional scooter model maybe work with better unit economics around the vehicles. And Lime and Bird are obviously still birds just close another round. But when I've talked to a lot of VCs, they've been like, yeah, scooters, anything in the micromobility space, they're just very, they've got a lot more skeptical. I think I feel a lot of them feel kind of a little bit burned with the way that that scooter, the scooter world has kind of come to be and, and the returns that they get, they're expecting to see there. So for you guys in that kind of context, what was the conversations like when you've been uh, talking to investors? Yeah. So, so I think the interesting thing is because so many investors have put into scooter operators, it's hard to both have a, a vertical bet and then make a horizontal bet, right? Because if, if we're working with all the operators, it doesn't necessarily benefit just the one operator you've already invested in. And so the Venn diagram for us is who is believes in micromobility, but hasn't yet made a big bet on an individual operator. And I, I think the belief that, you know, the, the ultimate physics that, that I think is propelling this industry forward is more and more people are moving into cities. Cities aren't getting any bigger. And so the cars need to get smaller. And you have all of this underutilization of, of existing cars and using cars for short trips. And so the, the investors that, that believe that this ecosystem will be vibrant many years down the road, but also realize that it's really hard to know which operator or if any one operator will, will actually capture the market the same way Uber did. Th- those are the investors that are most receptive to Tortoise, people who b- believe in micromobility in the future, but realize that th- the path for any one operator, that there are very limited network effects uh, that, that are accessible in the space. So yeah, I mean, we're 
we're fortunate to be fundraising during a time of, of global capital abundance. And so, you know, we have investors in the U.S. and Europe. If you have a big vision and you have a strong team, it doesn't really matter, I think, the, the macro view on micromobility as much. And I think the other key difference is we're a software company, we're not an operating company, right? So, so the, the amount of funds we need to raise is fundamentally different than an operator does. And so I think we're just in a very different class of, of, of consideration. I think the thing that, that is true is some of the most bullish investors in the space, because they've already made an operator bet, they're constrained in terms of other bets they can make. And so that's been a restriction for us. But in general, we see ourselves very different as an operator and folks that believe that, that more and more people are moving into cities, they understand that, that shared micromobility is going to be an essential ingredient of that future. Cool. Well, look, we're right up against time, but I just want to say uh, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, and and I am bullish. I'm, I'm very bullish on the space. I think it's it makes a lot more sense to me to see autonomy, especially low-speed autonomy and, and micromobility, than I expect to see it in, in cars. You've done a fantastic job of articulating the points about why this is. Um, so I really appreciate it. And um, for folks who want to find out a bit more about you guys, um, how would they do that? So uh, you can just email me directly, dmitry at tortoise.dev. You can check us out at www.tortoise.dev as well. Um, and we're, we're happy to talk with uh, any operator, any OEM, uh, anybody that, that believes that shared micromobility will, will realize its full potential when the vehicles can come to you. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dimitri. Thank you. And really appreciate, you know, I, I don't think without the advocacy for this industry uh, and, and the support you guys are giving to all kinds of startups, uh, that, that the industry would be progressing as fast as it is. And so just really grateful to you guys for, for what you're doing uh, to make this all possible. Uh, and I think it's encouraging more entrepreneurs to enter the space. Uh, and so, you know, very grateful and please keep going. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it.